Welcome to the Chris Ann Hall Show live. Forgive me for being late. I was having some trouble with my uh, camera, and I still might be. I'm going to try to fix the uh, the uh, focus a little bit anyway. I don't know if the the audio sync is quite right today, or but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So it'll be a little short. Forgive me for being late. It reminds me when I taught college. I was actually... Uh, almost 15 minutes late one time, and I was teaching uh, persuasive writing at Penn State. And uh, I showed up to the class like 12 minutes after it was supposed to start. It was a night class. And the deal was the students knew, um, the students knew that if the teacher was 15 minutes uh, late, that they could leave, right? And so we still have that issue, don't we? So the, um, the students knew that if it were, if I was 15 minutes, they I walked in right before 15 minutes and all oh, the groans, they all groaned, you know, about it because they knew it was a three hour class. So I didn't even acknowledge it. I just walked in and the students were over there and I felt terrible, just like I do right now <laughs> about being late. But I walked in and I turned toward the chalkboard and uh, opened up my bag and I was about to write and I turned around. And uh, without explaining why I was late, I just told this story before I taught the class. So I'll share the story with you. So there's this elderly lady, and um, she had just heard about Viagra. And she went to the pharmacy, right? And the pharmacist was an old guy himself, and she was asking all about Viagra. And he explained it, and she said, you know, can you get it over the counter? Does, does it really work? Um, he says, oh, it works. It definitely works. And she says, can you get it over the counter? And he says, I don't know, lady, maybe if I take two or three of them, I can. Why? Do, I don't know. Why are you asking? Oh, it went over a lot better in college. Um, <laughs> boy, I hope this is working because I have a couple of things I want to share with you. They're coming after savings now. They're coming after American savings, and they're going to do it because of equity. I want to show you something. This is on uh, my Facebook page, um, the Bernie Thompson Show on Facebook. Take a look at this. So this was the Wall Street Journal, by the way, is not the Wall Street Journal uh, that that maybe we remember. Um, look what they say. Uh, this is a, a, a piece that they sponsored. And I don't know who bought the Wall Street Journal or any of that. But older Americans stockpiled, they say. They stockpiled a record $35 trillion. And the time has come to give it away for equity, see, for equity. Now, if you look at the, at the picture there, what do we see? They call it a wealth transfer. See, they, they, change, they change everything up. A wealth transfer is when the government taxes the ever living out of citizens and then give it to others to whom it doesn't belong. That's a wealth transfer. But they're trying to say a wealth transfer is when money stays in the family. We told our children that we're going to give them a head start in life. See, that's not equity. The move is that we need equity. And if you take a look at that, what do you see? Look closely at the symbolism here. You see a couple of people who look almost like Antifa with a baton beating the greedy American pig. 
so that we can have some equity. You don't need all that, you fat pig. And your little piglet kids certainly don't need it. That would be a wealth transfer. And that's not equity. They are coming after, for sure, um, your savings. This is one of the next moves. And the arguments will be, what do you need to, what do you need all that money stockpiled for? It's just laying around. Now, what's the response to that? Let's say you have a big savings. Let's say you uh, were responsible and successful and you made good investments and you want to, you want to leave something to your family. Well, some people uh, believe that you're just hoarding the money, stockpiling, you know, like some people do with guns. They stockpile, say ammo. Now, some people call it a collection (laughs) and others call it stockpiling. But I want you to see Milton Friedman, uh, the great Milton Friedman, he really handled this so well. He used to go on the Phil Donahue show. This would have been about 1979. Okay. And this is back when Americans were mature enough to have disagreements without calling each other terrible names and vilifying each other. And Phil Donahue was a, a liberal in, in, the, in the sense that we remember liberals. We can't find them anymore. They're like Snuffleupagus, as I told you. But um, they used to come on and have debates. And Milton Friedman was kind of like Yoda, right? He was so wise. I think Yoda might be a little taller than, than Milton Friedman. But, but I love Milton Friedman because he did such a good job explaining things. And notice when he talks to this lady who accuses the rich of stockpiling and hoarding their money when other people could use it, they're greedy. He doesn't tell her she's wrong. Notice what he does. He asks her questions. It is so brilliant. And we really, I miss this so much. We, we don't have this really anymore, but I want to share it with you. It's only a couple of minutes, um, but boy, is it worth it. I, I think this is going to really uh, enrich your life. And I mean that. Here we go. This is uh, Milton Friedman answering a, a lady who claims there are too many millionaires that are stockpiling their money. The same argument you're going to hear now. Let's take a listen. Over here. Uh, Why is it we have so many millionaires and everything in the United States, and we still have so many impoverished people who try to get up into the world? Why is it we have this lack of money where people who can't support themselves decently and get a decent job, where all these big men are up on top making oodles and oodles of money, they don't need it. They can only eat that much, eat in a sleep in the bed. And what do you suppose they do it? If they don't eat it and don't, sleep, uh, don't use it, what do you suppose they, they do They hoard it. They and what hoard do you mean they hoard it? You mean it. they put it under their pillow? That's right. No. They, they keep investing it. Investing it in That's what? That's right. Yeah. What are they invested in? Well, in oil and everything where, I mean, all these other people. Who are what are they invested in? Don't get off the subject. No. What are they invested in? Well, they invested in a lot of uh, different things that the little people need. Well, do they invest it in factories? Yes. Does some of that money end up in machines? Yes. Do those factories and machines provide ordinary working people with jobs or not? What do you suppose the productivity of this country would be and of the, uh, the wage rate would be if the total amount of capital in this country today was what it was 100 years ago? Where right. do you suppose the improvements in productivity come from except from the, re- the investment by people of their savings? But let me go to your fundamental question. First place, 
Nirvana is not for this world. There is no paradise. Of course, we've got a lot of people who are poorly off. But if you look at it over time, if you get a sense of proportion, the well-being of a ordinary people has been the main thing that has been improved by economic progress and economic growth and development. And residual, most residual hard cases of poverty today are the result, again, of a failure of government. Why do we have a teenage, black teenage unemployment rate in 30 to 40 percent? Because of two failures of government. One, a failure to provide decent schooling, which is a governmental responsibility, has been, whether it should be or not, it has been. And second, because of a minimum wage rate, which prevents those kids who haven't had decent schooling from getting jobs at low pay at which they can earn the skills on the jobs that would enable them to rise to higher pay. If you look at the, the sources of poverty, you will find a very most of them are derived from bad, what I regard as wrong-headed government policies. We, um, we sure could use more of that today. And, you know, there are people who can explain things like that very, very well. Um, but there's not that opportunity today. Not really. We don't have shows where ideas collide and reason prevails. Do you know why? Because when ideas collide, liberty wins. That's why. That's why always and everywhere uh, there must be censors around the world. These ideas are dangerous because they're true because they benefit regular, ordinary people. Why don't very many people know these things anymore? They just think that people are stockpiling money. Look, uh, the government, the federal government, and whoever's running it, they're coming after those trillions of dollars that are in savings and that are being invested. It's because they've already spent through everything else. They're, they have a voracious appetite. The great American heist is about to uh, is about to begin. They want to plunder what you have, and really, one of the saddest parts of all of this is, you know, they say, uh, "Have you ever heard the saying, ignorance is bliss?" Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance will drag you into the depths of despair and leave you there. Ignorance is not bliss. These um, these ideas need to be heard and heard more. And I'm excited because I hope more and more platforms will spring up and uh, we'll have this. But what I don't see is anybody on the other side of the argument willing to have conversations anymore. They're just not. That's another point when I say there are no liberals to be found. There are no liberals to be found. Instead, they just want to say the debate is over. You know, when I heard that, that whole Al Gore thing, right? Um, the debate is over. The debate is never over. Questions always have to be asked. John Stuart Mill was so good about this. He was so good about the truth must be challenged, right? The truth can handle it. We need to stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day as Alfred said on uh, The Dark Knight Rises. 
So when you see this coming and you hear these arguments, uh, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be frustrated because we live at a time where students think they know more than their professors. Well, actually, you know, and we also live at a time uh, when the professors are being paid to, um, to spread propaganda rather than teach people how to think critically. All of these institutions are being hijacked. We all know this, but I wanted to share a couple of things. I'm going to share another one with you. One of my all-time favorites, as a matter of fact, and it's again Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman is uh, talking again with Phil Donahue. Oh, if you haven't seen this, it's golden. It's about two minutes. It, it really shows you um, who knows something and who just feels something. You, you've got, you know, I know so many people like this whose feelings, you know, they care, but what they don't realize is if they don't diagnose the problem correctly and there's not a proper answer to the problem, then the people you care about are going to be hurt. And these are the useful idiots, right? These are the, these are the regular folks because I do believe uh, those up at the top who are pushing these policies, they understand very well. I mean, a, 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 an educated society is not good for a ruling elite. What did Thomas Jefferson say? Something to the effect of, if a people want to be ignorant and free, they want what never was and never will be. Can't be ignorant and free. But here's another thing I've noticed. Among the useful idiots, right? Among those who are being put in a trance on social media is um, freedom and liberty is not their paramount political value. Safety is, or fairness is, but not liberty or freedom. I had somebody call me a bad name today on Facebook. Yeah, so I don't know who the guy is. I made a little comment on a news post and, um, Somebody says, and he used to be an anchor, by the way. He used to be a TV anchor in Tampa. Um, I really don't remember his name. Oh, well. Anyway, um, and, and he says, he, four, four words is all he says underneath me. He says, must be a patriot. Oh, he really, he really laid it on me, right? Really insulted me. Must be a patriot. And so I started looking around. That's another thing, right? That's what they're going to start calling you because when they call you a patriot, they're trying to conflate that with white supremacy, with all of that. It's all part of the move to make what they consider right wingers um, to be criminals before the next big election, right? That's the move. All right, let me show you this incredible response uh, by. Uh, Milton Friedman to Phil Donahue when Phil Donahue um, when Phil Donahue says what we hear all the time and again he does such a good job asking questions all right here we go take a listen to this uh, this is about 1979 when you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth the the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries 
when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you, when you see the greed and the concentration of power with it, don't, aren't you ever, did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism and whether greed's a good idea to run on? Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worth, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. <laughs> Oh, isn't he? Isn't it so just absolutely spectacular? All right, let me get rid of these. So Milton Friedman, um, if you haven't seen those, um, I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. You may see over my shoulder, over this shoulder, there is a book there called The Law uh, by Frederick Bastiat. It's very short. It's only about 55 pages, and it was written in 1850 uh, in France. Bastiat was a philosopher and an economist. <clears throat> and that book, The Law, is the first book I recommend on anybody's liberty library. And the first 20 pages are absolutely incredible. And so are the last 20 pages. In the middle, uh, there's a lot of talk about what's going on in France at the time. And you may not know the names, but the principles apply. But what Bastiat does in the book is he examines human nature. And human nature doesn't change, does it, over time. And um, he explores human nature as it relates to the proper role of government. And it's absolutely incredible. When, he's, when, he, when the book's titled The Law, it, it could have been titled The Government. Okay, but the government is the law. And he, one of my favorite quotes in there, and I'll paraphrase it, Bastiat says, government is that great fiction whereby everybody tries to live off of everybody else. Isn't that great? And he, he does kind of what Milton Friedman did there. And he asks, what special clay are bureaucrats and politicians made of that make them more noble 
than we are. The difference is you and I uh, have to uh, get ahead through voluntary um, exchanges, right? You want what I'm selling and it's worth you giving the money to get what I'm selling and vice versa. Both sides win more than anything else. But what we're going to start seeing is people comparing uh, capitalism to utopia. And when you compare capitalism to utopia, capitalism sucks out loud. But when it reminds me of what Winston Churchill said about democracy, he said, democracy is the worst form of government ever devised, except for all of the others. Now, that's actually very wise, because one of the things when we consider public policy that we need to, our first question whenever we think of public policy after does the Constitution permit it? Is the government allowed to do it? Is compared to what? Is capitalism good? Well, compared to what? Compared to anything else real, yes. But here's a major problem today, isn't it? A major problem today is people confuse capitalism with what? Cronyism. Capitalism is not cronyism. I hate cronyism maybe even more than I hate socialism because you get people who should know better lining their pockets while, while professing to be capitalist free market people. And instead there it's, and we see the results of it. We see America sinking. We see States sinking. We see cities sinking and these greedy so-and-sos. The only, the only thing that, that, that gives me any happiness in watching it because I'm no saint is I watch them line their, it's like they're on the Titanic. You may have heard this analogy and they're lining their pockets with the finest silverware while the Titanic is sinking. Well, when it sinks, guess who are going to be the first ones to sink? That's that cronyism is repugnant, reprehensible. I can't stand it. I see it everywhere. And Republicans, Republicans who should know better, are too often involved in that. You know, I think about capitalism and socialism and people's misunderstandings of the two of them. And look, I've got a bachelor's degree in political science. I know the textbook definitions of them, but I prefer my own. <laughs> I prefer my own. Here's how I would define capitalism. All right. In the context that you know, there's private property, that there's rule of law, right? That there's predictability of the law so that we can plan our, our lives and, and run our businesses without them changing them all the time. Capitalism is, um, is self-interest plus honest dealings. That's capitalism. Self-interest plus honest dealings. You say, but Bernie, sometimes in capitalism, people are not honest. I know that. That's why we have mechanisms. That's what the court is for. That's what tort law is for. That's what contract law is for. You know, there are really only two things in a free and civil society. If people did, we would be much better off. Only two that I can think of. One, do what you say you're going to do, right? Honor your contract. And two, don't hurt each other. Don't take each other's stuff, right? 
That's it. So when people do those things to each other, that's when we need courts. But that's capitalism. Just because inside of capitalism, you have some bad actors doesn't make capitalism bad because there are inside of that system mechanisms to deal with uh, people who are not doing uh, things in an honest way. Do you like that? Self-interest plus honest dealings. And it's very different from cronyism. What about socialism? Well, I know the textbook definition of that too, the government owning the the means and production of, of industry, but I don't like that one so much. You know, there's an easier way to look at that. Socialism or collectivism is really when the government's plan supersedes all of our plans. Whenever you hear a politician, and I remember this so much, golly, Al Gore and George W. Bush, oh, their debates were painful. Who remembers those debates? You had George W. Bush there, you know, and he, he at least, you know, he, you get these two guys side by side and people were, uh, the pundits were starting to say that Al Gore was losing these elections because uh, he wasn't the alpha male on stage. Do you remember this? Al Gore. Bush was the alpha male, right? He was very masculine and he seemed, you know, where Gore was more of my plan. And so they had another debate coming up and they had to figure out a way to make Al Gore more of an alpha male. So what did they do? They hired a feminist. (laughs) I kid you not. They hired a feminist to teach Al Gore how to be more of an alpha male. And one of the things they told them is to wear more earth tones. So Al Gore came out with more earth tones. And do you remember when Tipper comes up on stage and Al Gore grabs her and just plants one on her? It was so awkward. You talk about the most awkward kiss ever. That was Al Gore. But they kept, and Bush did it too, uh, my plan. And then Gore would say, under my plan. And I kept just watching. That was so painful for me to watch because I know that when the federal government has a plan, a plan that supersedes all of our individual plans, that's a form of collectivism. That is really what socialism is all about. When the government's plan for the future uh, supersedes all of our plans. And the reason that socialism, well, first of all, people say, well, it's beautiful on paper. It's not that even. It's, It's not beautiful on paper. I mean, I've heard people say that, and I used to think it before I understood. But it's never okay when government, the crushing force of government's plan, supersedes your plan. Well, we're going to move toward, um, uh, you know, we're going to take these scarce resources like milk. And what we need is we need to have more cheese. This is the kind of stuff they did in the Soviet Union, where the the, uh, command and control economy, where you had the central planners deciding what to do with it. So let's define economics. This is also important. By the way, if, and I don't do this individually, but if I were to debate uh, anybody in public about economics, I'd like to get these definitions up front, right? How do you define economics? You'd be amazed how people these days, because of social media, will talk about economics like they understand economics. And when you ask them the simple basic question, how do you define it? They have no answer. I like Thomas Sowell's definition, and I've adopted it. Economics 
is the study of how scarce resources are allocated. And even more specifically, it's the study of how scarce resources with alternative uses, like milk, you can make cheese, you can make ice cream, you can, how they are allocated. Are they going to be allocated through central planners, a command and control economy that, that, um, and government's expensive. Who thinks government's expensive? When, when government takes a dollar, that dollar is no longer worth a dollar. Government is expensive and wasteful. And so when government does that, they don't have the knowledge to know what people want. There's the knowledge problem. And that is what Frederick Bost, not Frederick Bastiat, F.A. Hayek, in the great book called uh, The Road to Serfdom, he talked about the knowledge problem. And the knowledge problem is fixed as best it can be fixed when free people are able to choose what they want and other free people are able to supply what they want, right? And then it, and then everybody wins. You get more of it and people are able to make you, 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 you the pie grows, which is another major, major flaw of Marxist thinking, they act as though the pie never grows, that wealth never increases, and they complain about it on their iPhones. Think about that. The oppressed in America, typing away on their iPhones in those nice shoes, and we're funding our own demise in many ways. But that's the definition of economics and, and, and socialism, again, is when the government's plan supersedes your plan and my favorite, and this is my own definition of, of capitalism. It's not cronyism. That sucks. Capitalism is self-interest plus honest dealings. Honest dealings. Who remembers uh, Zig Ziglar? You remember Zig Ziglar? He was a uh, sales trainer and a motivational speaker out of Texas. And he had a deep voice, Zig Ziglar. I love Zig Ziglar. And he says something that is so quintessentially American and something that really, that really shows the value of free markets, of people wanting stuff and other people coming up because they live in a, in, in a country where property rights are protected, where we have predictability of laws, the rule of law, these types of things, an engine, somebody can come up with ideas to provide goods and services that make everybody's life better. Oh my goodness. Zig Ziglar used to say this in America, you can have anything in life that you want. If you find, if you help enough other people get in life, what they want, that's the entrepreneurial spirit. You can have anything in life that you want if you help enough other people get in life what they want through free and voluntary exchange. Now, you compare that. Oh, my God. You compare that to um, the, the toxic rhetoric that we've been hearing really since the Obama administration in earnest. I mean, it was before that, of course. But I can remember in the Obama administration hearing things like, at some point, you've made enough money. Does he look like he believes he's made enough money? 
the guy is in the top. He always remember he'd always uh, talk about the what the millionaires and billionaires want. Those are his peeps, the millionaires and billionaires. Dude lives a one percent lifestyle that would embarrass the one percent. Oh my gosh. I mean, I could go on and on about that. Remember, at some point you've made enough money. And then he said that if you own a business, you didn't build that, right? Because you got to travel on roads and the government built the roads. You didn't build that. The government built the system, right? The structure for you to get wealthy. These types of ideas now, they've been absorbed into the DNA of a lot of people. And you combine that with the corporate interests that don't give a flip about you and I having opportunities when they're enriching themselves, saying things like, well, you better stay home or it's too dangerous out there. You can't shop the mom and pop shop. You got to shop on Amazon. And then you read the Washington Post and they're uh, promoting Amazon because they're both owned by the same guy. Unbelievable. I mean, what's going on is unbelievable. And it's, I don't know. I was going to say whose fault it is, but that's a long conversation. Uh, I also remember um, Obama not only saying that, you know, you didn't build your business and at some point you've made enough money, but there were so many more things like that, that he would, that he would talk about. And he would, try to, and a lot of people, here, here's something I, I like to say that wisdom, uh, counterintuitive wisdom is where it's at. Counterintuitive wisdom is where it's at. I'll give you an example. Um, he talked a lot about charity and, and the importance of, of volunteering and charity. And I agree that is important, but you know, I would argue that, um, that capitalism is even more noble than charity. You know why? Because if capitalism is vibrant enough, you have people who have jobs, right? They don't need charity. They've got jobs or you've got more entrepreneurs. You've got the whole quality of life has been lifted because you can't have charity if you don't have a vibrant economy and you can't have a vibrant economy through central planning. And now the government's run all out of money. People think they've got a pile of money. They don't have a pile of money. They got a hole and it goes all the way to China. <laughs> There's a hole in Washington, DC. There's not a pile of money and they burn through it. Do you know that Washington is borrowing more than $6 million a minute? You heard that right? They're borrowing more than $6 million a minute. The most reckless people in the history of the world, they're out of money. And now they're looking at investments and savings and they're calling it a stockpile. That is what fuels innovation. That is what fuels our quality of life moving up. And these conversations aren't had as much anymore. And our young people are being poisoned in our colleges, on TikTok, TikTok's a serious problem. I have I have a, an 18 year old and a 17 year old, both daughters. 
And I worry, I, I don't know if there's any way to untangle the terrible ideas that they've, that they've, that they've got, that they've absorbed. I don't know. I'm a little worried about a lot of these things, but I wanted to share Milton Friedman with you tonight. And I got to get out of here before the top of the hour. Forgive me for being late. And uh, Chris Ann Hall, I am so, um, so thrilled uh, that you've allowed me to do this again. Uh, ChrisAnnHall.com is uh, where you can find out more. And if you want to find out any more about me, this is where you can you can find me on YouTube at the Bernie Thompson Show. Thanks for being with me tonight. And I'll look at your comments in just a little while on Facebook at the Bernie Thompson Show. And I can't wait for more platforms to open up because Facebook is not good for us right now. But, you know, it is a double edged sword and we can get the word out as we're doing right now. Thank you so much for being with me and I will see you the next time.